His shed blood made atonement for our sins. It was the means by which we could be reconciled to God. People in Rome did not know about this. They may have been alive at the time of this event, but they didn't know about it. People in Samaria and Judea may have heard about this event, but they didn't know the significance that it had for their spiritual lives. It required someone to go and tell them. This is how God has chosen that this gospel get spread. We could think of maybe ways that are easier, right? We could think, God, you have so many angels at your disposal. Can't you just send them? They're called messengers. Can't they just bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? Can't you just maybe write in the sky what you would like people to know? And yet God has described for us the means by which this gospel is going to be spread. And it is through the preaching and teaching of humans to other people. Listen to how Romans describes the process by which the gospel is spread in Romans chapter 10, beginning with that very famous utterance, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's a process. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This passage of scripture is illustrating what I just described to you on that map, that people only come to Christ through the preaching of the word. Romans chapter 1, we've studied this recently, tells us that you can know God or know of God through creation, But God's revelation in creation is not sufficient to save someone. Sometimes the question is asked, what happens to people in some remote territory who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What happens to them when they die? Well, on the basis of Romans chapter 1, we would say they're condemned for the rejection of God, for turning to idols. This reality has motivated missionaries for thousands of years to take the gospel to the unreached people groups. People have been consumed by this idea that there are people who still have not heard the name of Christ and the good news that he offers, and we must take it to them. This was the heart of the Apostle Paul. I think that's evident from his first three missionary journeys. We can see him go on these journeys and bringing the gospel to people, but we don't have to speculate that this was Paul's heart. He actually tells us in Romans 15 that his heart is to bring the gospel to people. He's describing his, uh, his ministry uh, around the world, and he says this in Romans chapter 15, at the end of his third missionary journey, or on part of it, he says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I said this was written on Paul's third missionary journey, the final one that the scriptures record for us, and he kind of gives us a summary of the geographical locations that he has covered. From Jerusalem 
to Illyricum in Greece, kind of on the western side of Greece, Paul says, I have brought the gospel there. And yet he's still looking forward and look at what's motivating him to preach the gospel. Look where he wants to go, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul here has eyes on yet another destination. Romans 15 is going to tell us Paul wants to go past Rome all the way to Spain. This is as far west as you could go in the Roman Empire at the time. And Paul says, there are people in Spain that have not heard the name of Christ. I have to take the gospel there. Even today, with all of the modern advancements that we have made in transportation and in technology, you would think that everyone who wants to know the name of Christ would have opportunity to, and yet that's just not true. There is a website, I'd encourage you guys to check it out, called The Joshua Project uh, that lists unreached people groups. Uh, provides prayer guides to pray for people who are unreached. And according to them, there are something like over 7,000 unreached people groups still existing in the world today. Uh, They did a quick estimation of how many people that would entail. Of the 7, 8 billion people on earth, 3.4 of them are what they would consider to be unreached. 3.4 billion people who are still unreached. And so the call extends to us today, right? What can we do to bring the gospel to people who have never heard of Christ? Everyone in this room knows people that I don't, that no one else here does. We may be the only connection to some of these unsaved people. Let me encourage you to bring the gospel to them. Certainly there are missionaries who have... uh, given of everything and moved halfway around the world to some remote village in the middle of nowhere to bring Christ to people. But we can do our part here in our workplace, in our community, to bring the gospel to people who are moving from halfway around the world to us, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends. Let me encourage you. I'm sure many of you are desirous of opportunities to share the gospel with people and they just don't seem to happen all that often. Let me encourage you to pray about it. We know that this prayer is in line with the heart of God. He says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you pray along these lines already with where God's heart is, do we trust that he will bring people to us that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ? I think he is. This is just kind of an overview of what Acts could be teaching us here that this isn't just the Apostle Paul's responsibility to bring the gospel to people. It's all of ours. We all have a responsibility to share and preach this good news. We'll transition to the questions now. Uh, You're in Acts 25. Kind of picks up with Paul in prison. In the events preceding this chapter, Paul has been wrongfully accused and imprisoned and he's been transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea and while he's in Caesarea he has an opportunity to talk to this guy Felix and his wife and we talked about last week how the uh, contents of Paul's message had to do with righteousness and judgment and self-control and Felix's response to this preaching was to be alarmed. We said last week that he was convicted 
And yet Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years. And in the span of this two years, Felix actually is replaced by another governor. This time his name is Festus. And Festus kind of picks up an awkward spot in Paul's trial. Um, He realizes that Paul is innocent, but he also wants to please the Jewish people. And there's kind of a stalemate. And in an effort to kind of kickstart things, Paul just says, you know what? I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to get out of these lower courts and make my way to Rome. Uh, and, And that was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar and to be able to argue his case before Caesar himself. Now, as this is kind of developing, King Agrippa also comes to Caesarea and encounters the Apostle Paul. Uh, Agrippa is the second. Uh, I think his title is Herod Agrippa II. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago now that there are five or six Herods in Scripture. Agrippa II's father was obviously Agrippa I, and he was the Herod that we read about earlier in Acts, who took the glory for himself, and God struck him down. So this is kind of the family that this guy is coming from. And as Paul does when he's making a defense before these guys, we'll see in Acts 26, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, Uh, there's a couple of events that happen in Acts 25 that we would see as fulfillments of prophecy, So how are the events of this chapter as a whole a fulfillment of what Jesus had said back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15? Anyone have an answer to that question? John? Paul was bringing the message of Jesus to kings and the Gentiles. Yes. Yes, back in Acts chapter 9, Ananias receives word that Paul uh, has been blinded and he needs to go share the gospel with Paul and uh, open his eyes. And so Ananias is like, are you sure about that? This is the guy who's been persecuting the church. And God says, go, because as John said, I have commissioned him to bring the gospel to Jews, to Gentiles, and to kings and governors. And here Paul is in Acts chapter 25, standing before a king. He's already talked to two governors about the gospel. Pretty awesome. There's a second prophecy that is fulfilled in this chapter. How did Jesus' words to Paul back in Acts 23 begin to be fulfilled in verses 11 and 12? Temi. Yes, and how does that begin to be fulfilled in this chapter? How do we see the ball start moving on that? Yep. Exactly. Yes. Paul appeals to Caesar and they say, okay. And so we're seeing what Jesus had said to Paul just a couple of chapters prior that he was going to Rome begins to take place as Paul appeals to Caesar and starts moving towards Rome. And so then generally, what are some conclusions that you would make about Jesus from these two fulfillments? What can we learn about Jesus in these two instances here? Yeah, Bella. Yes, absolutely. Jesus is all-knowing. We would say maybe even a step further than him just being really good at predicting the future. Jesus has authority over all things. 
that what he tells Paul and Ananias chapters prior, Jesus has the authority to bring about. Can I remind you guys of Colossians chapter 1, this awesome text about Jesus's um, authority, his identity. We're told that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Exactly. Jesus has authority over all things. Any other things that you could think about uh, regarding Jesus from this text of scripture here? Yeah, Claire. Okay, we see some of maybe Jesus' encouraging ministry here, which has been evident already through the book of Acts. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Hutch. Exactly, yes. Jesus keeps his word. In Acts chapter 9, he tells Ananias that these things are going to happen, and they do. In Acts 23, he tells Paul he's going to Rome, and he does. So like Hutch is saying, what are the promises of Jesus that are still yet unfulfilled? Can we trust are going to happen? You know, certainly we trust Jesus. It's always good to see evidence of him keeping his word, though, that kind of bolsters and strengthens our faith. Our faith, like, yes. When Jesus makes promises, he keeps them. When he says that no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand, that he's returning, that we are saved if we believe in him, these things are True. They help to strengthen our faith. I think also we kind of get a glimpse of um, Jesus' work post-resurrection, if you will. Sometimes we think that Jesus just died on the cross and was raised again and sweet, that's it. Well, the book of Acts helped us realize Jesus is still busy doing a lot of stuff. He, he is appearing to Paul and encouraging him. He's keeping his promises. Colossians tells us that Jesus is upholding all things presently. Romans and Hebrews tells us that Jesus right now is interceding for us. The resurrected Jesus is still very much at work. I'm going to comment on that a little bit later. But yes, absolutely, Jesus is still at work today. And so when we come to Acts 26, Paul begins to make his defense before Festus and Agrippa and all the prominent people who are present. And as Paul does, when given an opportunity to talk about really anything, in this case, defending himself, he always goes back and starts with his testimony. This is the second time now that Paul is before a group of people and he shares his testimony. And if you think about it, that is a pretty effective defense for Paul to talk about what his life used to to be like. You can notice in 26 verse 4, Paul describes himself prior to his conversion and says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Paul is saying, I am not some obscure individual that is standing before you today that none of you know what I was like prior to talking about Christ. I was kind of a household name. 
People knew what I was about, persecuting the church, snuffing out Christianity, standing in opposition to Jesus. And what a contrast for Paul then to have this reputation and on his way to Damascus when he encounters Jesus, when he arrives in Damascus and has his sight restored, he isn't there to persecute the church. He starts speaking in the synagogues and saying that the very person he was intending to put out is the person who he's declaring is now the son of God. His life does a total 180. It it, it was so public and so obvious that everyone would have known about this. Maybe there is a uh, a little thought for us as well to consider how our own testimonies can be an example to other people. Maybe you lived uh, a very secular worldly life prior to conversion, and when you were saved, you too did this 180 that was just dramatic, even externally. And when people ask you, what happened? You can point them to Christ. And say, this isn't just a change of mind that I had. There is a supernatural work that has taken place. As Paul is describing what took place on the road to Damascus, he recounts Jesus' words and his mission. And in particular, I thought it was interesting how Jesus describes what takes place at conversion, uh, at least as Paul recounts it here in this chapter. And how does Jesus describe what takes place at conversion? conversion according to this text. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, there's this real contrast that even Jesus observes. Like Jeff mentioned, their eyes being opened, turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Other texts of scriptures describe unbelievers as being dead, as being alienated, as having hearts of stone. And so how can this knowledge of the present condition of lost people help us to interact with them, knowing the state that they are currently in? I was asking you to apply this a little bit, but knowing the spiritual realities of lost people How should we interact with them? Lisa. Totally. Yes, great answer to that question. When we observe unsaved people uh, using foul language or behaving unethically or treating us in ways that we just cannot believe, can we be patient with them and gracious with them? And remember that what is this outward manifestation is revealing a present reality that they are presently under the power of Satan. They don't know any better. We should have if I could put it this way, low expectations for how unsafe people should act. We, we shouldn't hold them to the standard of believers where we expect them to be holy and Christ-like and loving and forgiving. That's just not the case. And if we hold them to a Christian standard, we're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. Remember, be gracious and patient with them that Jesus himself even identifies that they are under the power of Satan. Their minds are darkened. How, how else can we interact with unsaved people knowing this about them? Any other thoughts? Lynn.
Yeah, totally. John, what were you going to say? Yeah, totally. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Jeff. Totally. You took the words right out of my notes here. The same Jesus who looked at people and was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds as being helpless and like sheep without a shepherd is the same Jesus who, after his resurrection, appears to Paul and commissions him to bring the gospel to the masses, to these Gentiles who have never heard before. Yes, certainly the compassion of Jesus for lost people is something that we should emulate in our own lives. Yes, and so um, Paul then kind of turns, well, excuse me, after Paul finishes recounting his testimony, Festus like throws his head back and says, Paul, you are crazy. You're out of your mind that you're believing these things. Paul turns his attention to Agrippa at this point. What does he argue in verse 22 that his teaching is in accordance with? Yeah, Moses and the prophets. This is significant because Paul is on trial partly because people are accusing him of teaching something that is brand new, that is a competitor to Judaism. And Paul is illustrating, listen, what I'm teaching is in accordance with Moses and the prophets. This is not in contrast to Judaism. This is the fulfillment of it. Uh, Specifically, Paul mentions the death and resurrection and suffering Um, being, well, excuse me, the suffering, resurrection, and being light to the Jews and Gentiles that Moses and the prophets anticipate. And sure enough, you can go back and look at those things. And after Festus says, Paul, you're crazy, he turns his attention to King Agrippa. And what does Paul say to him in verses 27 to 29? How does he make his appeal to King Agrippa? Yeah, clear. He asked him if he believed You can just see in your mind's eye Paul looking directly at him and saying, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. In essence saying, what are you going to do with this? Because I have just presented the truth to you from texts that you believe. So what's it going to be? And Agrippa says, you think in such a short amount of time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And what is Paul's desire for all those in attendance? What does he say in response to that question? Sorry, Cubby. Yeah. He says, I want everyone here to be saved. It's convicting to think about Paul's heart for lost people here. Agrippa and Festus, they don't really care about him. The people in attendance, they're not necessarily Paul's friends. Rather than Paul on his knees, he's been in prison for two years, pleading to be released and set free. Given an opportunity, he says, listen, I wish that you guys were all like this. I wish that you all knew Christ. I think it's convicting. We come to Acts 27. 
and Paul begins the long journey to Rome. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, Paul had never actually been to Rome before. So this is his first time, and he's going as a prisoner. The fastest way to get to Rome from Caesarea is by boat, and it is quite the adventure. If you read Acts 27, the whole of it is pretty much dedicated to the storm that takes place that Paul is in, and it is a wild storm. I mean, people are throwing stuff overboard. The lifeboat is cut at one point. They're throwing food, the cargo, everything to lighten the ship. Paul is eventually shipwrecked in this storm. And yet 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, reveal that Paul was actually shipwrecked more times than just Acts records. How many times was Paul shipwrecked? Three. Yeah, we read about the sufferings of Paul in Acts, and we think, whew, this guy went through a lot. He was stoned, he was imprisoned, he shipwrecked. And then you make your way over to 2 Corinthians 11, and you realize that was only the half of it. There is stuff that Acts doesn't even record for us that has happened to Paul. Shipwrecked two more times, beaten. I mean, just unbelievable suffering uh, as a messenger of Jesus Christ. And then I asked you to focus your attention to a particular instance that takes place on the boat in which Paul stands up and encourages people on the basis of a message he had received in the middle of a night. If you remember, an angel comes to Paul and he encourages him by saying, listen, you and this whole crew are going to be saved. You are going to stand before Caesar in Rome. And Paul relays this message to the people on the ship. And in verses 22 to 25, how would you describe Paul's faith in the midst of these terrifying circumstances? I mean, just crazy stuff. I would hate to be out on a boat on a storm like this. But how would you describe Paul's faith here? Complete. Yeah, complete. Could you elaborate just a little bit more on that, Tommy? Like, what strikes you about his... Yeah. Uh, Paul was confident in his faith. There was a peace that characterized his faith. I mean, crazy circumstances. And Paul says, take heart. I received word from an angel. I trust God, that God keeps his word, even though our present circumstances certainly don't feel like it at the moment. And according to Isaiah 26, verse 3, where does our peace come from? Lynn. Absolutely. Our peace comes from a mind that is focused on God. Isaiah 26, 3 says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And as I was just thinking about this, I was thinking about my own life and how a lot of anxieties in my life stem from my mind. I wonder how many of you guys can relate to that. We just let our thoughts go wild. We think about uh, conversations we've had or will have. We think about pressing things in our lives, be they financial, relational strains, any number of things, and our mind just starts to go crazy. Thinking about the what ifs. How can I respond in this situation? I find myself, I don't know if this is true of you guys, I find myself like getting angry at situations that haven't even happened yet because my mind is going so crazy. And I have to pull myself back and go, these things haven't even happened. 
But a mind that is focused on God can have peace because it trusts, not in my own ability to navigate life, but in him. So then I asked you, what are some of the things that you know to be true about God that help you to trust him? Diane, God knows what's best for us. Totally. What else do you know about God? Claire. He's true to his Keeps his promises. He's no man for life. God is no man. God is not a man. Yeah. No yeah. Doesn't lie. What else do you know about God that can provide comfort and peace to your mind? Hutch. Yeah, God is with us. Certainly. Titus. Yes, God is sovereign. He's in control, totally, yes. Any other thoughts? Mike? Psalm 23, he's my shepherd. Yes, he's my shepherd. We can reflect on any number of things. God is good. He's loving. He doesn't change. He's patient. He's in control. He forgives sins. These are like junior church level truths. We could ask any four to six year old at church, do you believe God is good? And they'll say, yeah. Sometimes we forget these things and we interpret through our circumstances what God must be like. And things are hard and we say, maybe God isn't good. Can I encourage you to go back to the word and let your mind be stayed and focused on God and find peace in knowing who God is? We come to Acts 28. And Paul is continuing his journey to Rome. After his shipwreck, he's able to catch another ship. And they make their way to Rome. And as Paul always does, he goes to Jewish people first. And he presents the truth to them. And as Paul is talking to the Jewish people, what does Paul call Jesus in verse Lynn, the hope of Israel. What is Jesus called in Luke 2, verse 25? The consolation of Israel, yes. And how do you think that these titles are descriptive of Jesus being called the hope, the consolation, we might say comfort of Israel as Paul is talking to these Jewish people? How is Jesus all of those things? Mike. Exactly. Yeah. Paul is going back to the history of Israel and to their prophets. And he's saying that the prophets and Moses, much like we just discussed, are anticipating a Messiah who is going to come and deliver. And the Jewish people misinterpreted this and thought it was going to be a political deliverance, that the Messiah was going to come and set up a kingdom and overthrow the powers that had oppressed Israel for so long. And yet the comfort and hope that Jesus provides is the comfort and hope of sins forgiven. That is what Jesus provides. Again, Paul is showing us, as he has done throughout Acts, that he knows his audience 
very well. Here he is talking to Jews, and he speaks to them in terms that Jews understand. He's not presenting Christ in opposition to Judaism, but as the fulfillment of it. When Paul talks to Greeks, he speaks as one who is a philosopher. He talks about things that they would know about, but he introduces Jesus to them. How do the Jews in Rome at this time respond to Paul's teaching about Jesus? Titus. They're divided. Yeah, some believe, some don't, and eventually all of them end up leaving Paul as he is in Rome after he quotes those words from Isaiah that roughly say something like, your hearts have been hardened, your ears have been deaf, your eyes have been blinded. Isaiah spoke well of you guys. This is true. You're not believing the truth. And so Paul goes and Acts 28, the very end of the chapter, reveals that Paul goes to the Gentiles. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and all hindrance. And that's how Acts ends. Preaching the name of Christ for two years with all boldness, without hindrance. We also know that Paul wrote four epistles during his imprisonment, that the book of Acts records Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon all were written here in Rome at the time Paul was in prison. And that brings us to our second question, that in light of what we read about Paul's opportunities to preach the gospel in Rome unhindered, what would you conclude about the events that led Paul to Rome in the first place? Remember, he didn't come of his own volition, He wasn't, you know, just a free passenger on a ship going to Rome. He was a prisoner. He was falsely accused. What would you conclude then about all of the circumstances and events that brought Paul to Rome? Copy. That God is sovereign. Yeah. That God is in control even in the worst of circumstances. So then how should this help us think about our own response to difficult circumstances. What can Paul's example teach us? God's in control? Yeah, John. So I think there was one perspective she shifts from my present problem to God's potential opportunity. Totally. Yes. How many of you ever feel like you've just hit a wall in your life? That you're in just like a, a season of life that you wouldn't even pick for yourself, that is discouraging, You're overwhelmed. Do you think Paul felt like this in prison at times? Do you think every day was cheery? I'm here falsely accused. And yet, when we take a step back and look at the bigger picture and see what God is doing and using his imprisonment to let him talk to kings and governors, to be on a ship with all these Romans, to get over to Rome and for two years be able to preach the gospel unhindered, we can step back and say, whoa, God was doing something even bigger than I'm sure Paul could see at the time. Our view of God's sovereignty informs us that this is how God works. Even when our lives seem to have come to a standstill and we're not really going anywhere, we can trust that God is always working out things for good. Totally. Any other comments on that? All right, we'll then conclude with some summary questions. I would like you to raise your hand if you thought that Acts 
ended a little abruptly. Maybe in your read-through of it, you're like, okay, that's a little strange. Here Paul is, you know, finally just getting to his destination. He's told us he wants to go to Spain. He's going to stand before Caesar. And before we get to know about any of those events, the book of Acts just ends. And we're like, okay, the story was just getting good. (laughs) What's happening? There's no right or wrong answer to this, but I just asked you to consider why you think Acts ends so abruptly and to consider the key verse as you answer this question. Any thoughts as to how this key verse might have helped us out? Yeah, Tammy. It's funny because I didn't think it ended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great point, yeah. Maybe what the author is intending to do is to show us that the story isn't over. That there is a responsibility that we have to continue preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, any other thoughts? Great answer, Tammy. That was awesome. Uh, Yeah, Heather. Yeah. Lynn, I saw your hand raised as well. Okay, Uh, I'll just throw out one other thing. I know we're short on time. Uh, I did see one other um, solution that offered this idea that the book of Acts is not primarily about Peter or Paul. This is not a story of their lives. This is a story about the spread of the gospel. And so when you get to the uttermost parts of the earth, the story's over. Uh, One commentator I read said this. I'll try to find the quote really quickly. Um, Yeah, he says that the word of God in Christ... Not Peter, not Paul, is the real hero of the book of Acts. This is a story that is about the spread of the gospel, not an individual. Yes, and so I told you that Acts ends, and we don't entirely know what happens to Paul when he gets to Rome, and he's still a prisoner, and he's preaching the gospel for a couple of years. But there are some texts of scripture that kind of fill in the gaps a little bit for us as to what happened to Paul while he was in prison, and perhaps after. The first is found in Philippians chapter 1. He writes this, remember, in prison, and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you see one of the outcomes of Paul's imprisonment in Rome? The imperial guard is hearing the good news about Jesus. 
The people who are in Rome who see Paul imprisoned, they're being emboldened to speak the word without fear. Paul says this at the end of Philippians. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's in Rome and there are people in Caesar's household who are coming to Christ, responding to the gospel. Isn't this awesome? What Paul's imprisonment in Rome works out? We have one final question. As you reflect on the book of Acts, what are some of the key themes or takeaways that you have come away with? As you just think about the, the book in a holistic sense, any big themes that came to mind? Anything that you wanted to share, maybe just personally? Yeah, Lisa. Totally. The Holy Spirit is very present in the book of Acts. Great observation. Any other thoughts? I was going to say the same thing as Lisa, but also um, much like Jesus came directly and, and encouraged Paul, we you know, do that with us, but through his word, he does the same thing. Totally. There's an awesome view of Jesus in the book of Acts. Yeah, John. I think Acts is a lot about God establishing his church. What I get from Acts is that Christ died for the church, he established it, and continues to sustain it. And miracles still happen. Mm. Temmie, I saw your hand raised. Um, I got, go and make disciples of all nations. Yes. Spread this word. And that was the start of it. Exactly. That call extends to all of us. Cuppy. Yeah, we see from Acts that God certainly equips people that he calls to ministries. Yes, totally. All right, just a couple of final thoughts as we conclude the book. What happens to Paul after he's imprisoned in Rome? Maybe that's a question that you would like answered. We don't have a whole lot of scriptures that tell us about it. A lot of, us, a lot of this is dependent on church history. Did he ever get to go to Spain? Well, church history tells us that Paul was released from prison after what the book of Acts records, and he does eventually make it over to Spain. And he actually still writes a couple of books, or at least one, after his imprisonment. That's 2 Timothy. And you can tell what, in 2 Timothy that Paul is imprisoned again in Rome. And this time, he will not be released. Actually, Ted pointed out to me that you can tell that Paul is writing his last words in 2 Timothy. And I just want you to notice Paul in prison in Rome a second time, how he's thinking. So what he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Then he says these words in 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is a man who knows that he is not going to escape prison and he is beheaded in Rome. 
But these are his last words. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I pray that these words would be true of us as well. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Acts and for the history that it tells us. Thank you, as we've just commented even today, that your spirit is very present in the book and very present in our lives, equipping us, convicting us, directing us. Uh, Lord, would you help us to, again, take up this charge of taking the gospel to the unreached. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.